Several years ago, there was a certain Christian lady that was making her way to church on an Easter morning, and she was excited about attending the Easter morning service. And so she was making her way toward church, and all of a sudden, about halfway there, her car breaks down. So she's on the side of the road, and she's trying to decide, well, do I call AAA? And now if I call AAA, it'll take them an hour to get here. I'm going to be late for church. And so she decided just to call an Uber. And so the Uber shows up about five minutes later. She jumps into the back seat and heads off down the road toward church. Well, about halfway to church, uh, she's in the back seat, and she just says something to the driver up front, and it seemed like he completely ignored her. He didn't respond to what she was saying, so she just gently leaned forward and tapped him on the shoulder. Well, as soon as she taps him on the shoulder, the guy freaks out. He lets out this blood-curdling scream. He swerves the car into the other lane, almost hitting another car, and he slams on the brakes, skids to a stop on the side of the road. Well, at this point, they're just both in shock. She waits about a minute and then says, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to startle you. All I did was tap you on the shoulder. To which he responded, you know, it's really not your fault. It's not your fault. It's just I'm not used to my backseat passengers tapping me on the shoulder. For the last 25 years, I've worked as a driver for the local mortuary driving a hearse. I'm not used to people tapping me from behind. And I've got to say, you know what? If I'd been driving a hearse for 25 years, I'd freak out too if someone was tapping me on the shoulder from the back seat. Well, when it comes down to it, there was a lot of fear on that first Easter morning as well, right? They were pretty scared because they had more than a tap on their shoulder. Back in 1987, some bones from a human finger were discovered underneath a monastery in China. And the archaeologists came in and they examined those finger bones and they looked at all the artifacts that were found with it. And they came to the conclusion that these were bones from none other than Buddha's finger. And so Buddhists from around the world were converging on wherever that Buddha finger bone display happened to be at any given time. And so over the years, millions of people have descended upon wherever that display is to see the bones of Buddha's finger. And especially Buddhists, they honored those bones and they even worshipped those bones. Well, imagine what would happen if you were Buddhist and you went to see the finger bones of Buddha. And all of a sudden, as you're looking at that finger... It starts to twitch a little bit. That'd freak you out, right? Well, imagine Easter morning. They thought their favorite rabbi was dead. But the disciples all of a sudden are not just seeing the twitching of Jesus' finger. They're seeing all of Jesus from head to toe. And he's talking. And he's walking. And he's eating. And he even allows them to see the nail prints in his hands. And they put, in the case of Thomas, put their hand even in his side if they were still doubting that he had risen indeed. They were flipping out a little bit because as much as Jesus had told them what was going to happen, they still didn't get it. Well, Jesus' order of appearances can be put together as we look at what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even over in 1 Corinthians, what Paul says about that very first Easter morning. And so as we look at those five accounts, here is the order of Jesus' appearances on that first Easter. First of all, we know he appeared to Mary Magdalene. We read that in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. We also read it in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 11. We read about 
the second uh, group that found Jesus, that saw Jesus on Easter morning, that was the other women who were with Mary Magdalene there at the tomb. We read that in Matthew 28. Then we find that Peter, uh, Jesus appeared to him on Easter at some point. Luke tells us that in Luke 24:34, and then Paul tells us about it in 1 Corinthians 15:5. Next, two men on the road to Emmaus see Jesus. We're going to talk about them a little bit more this morning together. We find about them in Mark 16:12 and Luke 24:13 through 35. And then finally, in the evening of that first Easter, Jesus appears in the upper room to 10 of his 12 apostles. We read about that in Mark 16:14 and over in John chapter 20. Now, normally on Easter morning, we focus on the events that took place inside the tomb and around the tomb. So it's really common on Easter morning that uh, we focus on how early in the morning at the crack of dawn, uh, all of a sudden the angel descended with that earthquake. The angel descends and rolls the stone away. Remember, the angel rolled the stone away, not so Jesus could get out. It's not like he was pounding on the inside of that tomb saying, let me out of here. I'm risen. No, he didn't need the stone to be rolled away to get inside, right? So why was the stone rolled away? So the women and disciples could look inside and see that he had risen. Amen? So it was for their benefit, not for Jesus's. But the angel comes and there's the earthquake and the guards run away and the angel pushes the stone away and the angels come and sit on the tomb and the women come and the angels tell them he's not here, he's risen just as he said. And then the appearance of Jesus to Mary Magdalene and then his appearance to the women. That's usually our focus on Easter. But I'd like to do something a little differently this morning. I'd like us to focus on Jesus' appearance to these two men on the road to Emmaus. We don't talk about these guys very often, but I think their story is pretty interesting. Mark mentions them briefly in Mark 16, verse 12. He writes, Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. That's all Mark tells us. He doesn't tell us the men's names. He doesn't tell us where in the country they were walking. Uh, He doesn't even tell us what he means when he says that Jesus appeared to them in a different form. And so Mark really just brings up more questions than he actually answers. And so we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke and see what Luke has to say about this same account. Hopefully, since Luke's account is more detailed, he'll answer some of these questions for us. And so we're together in Luke chapter 24. Verse 13, say amen if you are there. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. About seven miles from Jerusalem, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. 
he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked with him on the road, and he opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them. When he broke the bread. May God bless us as we read and study and most importantly, apply his word to our lives today. Amen. All right. Well, by a show of hands, how many of you here today are believers and followers of Jesus Christ? Uh, That's awesome. Good to see a lot of hands there. Now, how many of you are baptized believers and followers of Jesus Christ? Okay, if you put your hands up for the first question, but not for the second, this is a great opportunity for me to mention We are going to give you an opportunity to be baptized. The end of this month, we're going to have our decision Sunday, the first Sunday of the uh, the last Sunday of the month. But really, biblically, I can't tell you anyone to wait when they want to be baptized. If you want to be baptized today, if you know that you're a believer and follower of Christ and you've never obeyed him by being baptized, we'd love to talk with you after the service about doing that. Now, I want to talk to those of you who have made that decision to commit your life to Jesus Christ. When it comes down to it, God has given you a wonderful responsibility when it comes to studying his word as a follower of Christ. We're going to put this verse up on the screen for you. This is such an important verse. I share it fairly often with our impact family. It's in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. This is what we're told. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Let's read this together. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. One of my most important jobs as a pastor is to faithfully and accurately teach the Word of God. Amen? It's one of my highest responsibilities is to faithfully teach the Word of God. So I put a lot of time into preparing each message coming into a weekend because I don't want to mess it up. I'm supposed to study God's Word and then present God's Word to you as faithfully as I know how. God has told me to preach His Word, not my Word. God has told me never to sugarcoat His Word, Never to water down his word, but to preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. God has called me to preach the truth, even when it's not popular, even when it's not something that makes you feel good, even when it hurts. God has called me to preach the word of God. That's my responsibility. But God has given you a responsibility when we come together as well. He's called you to be a Berean. First, to receive the word with eagerness. 
to be excited about hearing God's word, to be excited about learning God's word and drawing closer to Jesus Christ. Does that excite you? To be able to get to know your Lord better, to get to know his word better, to learn how to follow him better. We need to be eager receivers of God's word. Now, sometimes that's harder than others. Sometimes you go to a church and say, man, that that pastor, man, he's as dry as bones. That pastor, man, he's boring. You know, uh, he, he should consider it a sin to bore people with the gospel because, man, he's doing it a lot. Sometimes we go and we sit through a sermon. It's kind of hard to hear because it's not too engaging. It's not too inspiring. But you know what? God has called you to receive it eagerly anyways. Some preachers are better than others. Some people communicate better the word of God than others. That's just the way it goes. But we should still be eager when receiving the word of God. And then the second thing we read in this verse, Acts 17, 11, don't just receive it with eagerness. Test it every day to see if what, it, what the person is preaching is true. That's so important because you will go to church sometimes and you'll say to yourself, man, that's right on. That pastor's right on. Man, this is, this is really hitting the nail on the head. But you need to test it with Scripture anyway, don't you? Other times, it's like, I don't know if this guy's, you know, biblical here. I don't know if this is right. When you hear that and you have that feeling, test it with Scripture because our feelings are terrible barometers of truth. And so the Word of God says receive it with eagerness, but test it with Scripture. If you like the sermon, test it with Scripture. If you don't like the sermon, test it with Scripture. If you like the preacher, test it with Scripture. If you hate the preacher, test it with Scripture. The same job applies regardless of who is preaching the Word of God. So it's a beautiful thing. When whoever's up here preaching, me or Adam or Alan, whoever's up here preaching, when we're doing our job and you as the congregation are doing your job, it's a match made in heaven. Amen? Powerful things happen when we are accurately handling the word of truth, receiving it eagerly, and making sure we test it to make sure it's accurate and we live it out faithfully. Now, as we are students of God's word, as we are Bereans, one of the best things we can do is to ask good questions. And so as I was studying this passage, getting ready for the message this last week, I asked a few questions. Mark 16, I read that for you earlier, Mark 16, verse 12. All it says about these two men Jesus uh, visited on the road to Emmaus, the only thing Mark says is, afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. And there were these three questions that come to mind. What are these men's names? Mark doesn't tell us. Who are these guys? Second question that comes to mind, where are they in the country? Mark says, Jesus met him in the country. What does that mean? And then the third question that comes to mind, what does it mean when it says Jesus appeared to them in a different form? What did he look like? Why didn't they recognize him? Those are all good questions. And so when we turn to Luke chapter 24, let's see if Luke answers these three questions, that passage we just read together a few minutes ago. So question number one, what were these men's names? What were their names? So does Luke answer that question for us in that passage we read together? Yeah, look at verse 18. So one of their names is given. Verse 18, it says one of the man, man's names was Cleopas. Okay, who's Cleopas? I don't know, do you? Cleopas isn't mentioned before this passage. And nothing is said about Cleopas after this passage. It's like he appears and disappears in the matter of a few verses. We have no idea who this guy is. But we can do a little research and find out what his name means. Maybe that will clue us into something. You know what the name Cleopas means? 
It means glory to the Father. Or a slightly different translation, glory of the Father. Now, I think that's pretty cool because I imagine Jesus Christ walking and talking with these two men, one whose name was Cleopas. And so Cleopas is face to face with the very Son of God who is the embodiment of the glory of the Father. Isn't that pretty cool? Imagine that on Easter. That's better than doing an Easter egg hunt. That's better than spotting the bunny at midnight planting some eggs. There with the glory of the Father. That's awesome. That's Cleopas. That's Cleopas. What's Cleopas' friend's name? We're not told. Now, something very important to keep in mind when we're studying Scripture. I share this every once in a while with our church because this is so important as you are students of God's Word and I'm supposed to faithfully teach God's Word. What is the best interpreter of Scripture? Fill in the blank. The best interpreter of Scripture is... I wouldn't even answer Holy Spirit. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. Now, the Holy Spirit speak through Scripture? Absolutely. But that's the simplest answer I can give you. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. God is put in black and white, right there in His Word, certain things that are confusing. And oftentimes, we can go to another Scripture that interprets what that confusing Scripture means. Amen? And so the first place you want to go to interpret a scripture is scripture. That's why we are called to be Bereans, to dig into God's word, to examine the scriptures, to see if what someone is teaching us is true. So if you ever get to a place where you think that your pastor is up on some pedestal and you fill in the blank by saying the best interpreter of scripture is my pastor, you are in a very dangerous place. Sooner or later, your pastor will let you down because he is a sinner saved by grace. It is his responsibility to be held to a higher standard and try his best to meet that standard. But when it comes down to it, the best interpreter of Scripture is not your pastor. The best interpreter of Scripture is not your favorite theologian. The best interpreter of Scripture is not Aunt Mabel because she's such a God-fearing woman. The best interpreter of Scripture is, secondly, the best place to get answers that are posed by Scripture is Scripture. And so that's what we're doing here. Mark 16 said some things about these two men, and we're like, we have no idea what he's talking about. And so Luke is helping us to figure out what he's talking about. What were their names? One was Cleopas. That's all we know about him. He disappears off the scene as soon as he's mentioned here in this passage. And then his buddy, we have no idea who he is, so we shouldn't speculate too much. Evidently, God didn't think it was critical for us to know the second guy's name. Question number two, where in the country were they? That's what Mark said. Jesus talked to them while they were walking in the country. Where was that? Well, does Luke answer that question? He kind of does in verse 13. So look here, Luke 24, verse 13. He makes it clear that they were going from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus, located about seven miles from Jerusalem. So that clues us in a bit. They were going from Jerusalem seven miles away to Emmaus. And by by the way, that was downhill because Jerusalem was the highest city in that region. Okay? So they're on their way to Emmaus. Question number three, what does it mean when it says Jesus appeared in a different form to them? Now, does Luke answer that question? Kind of. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, Luke tells us they were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus evidently did some sort of undercover boss thing. You know, Uh, one way or another, he was keeping them from recognizing him. And so he took the initiative to somehow 
shield himself from being recognized until he at the table broke the bread and gave thanks. And then he took the spiritual veil off their eyes and immediately they were able to recognize Jesus. And so those are the answers to those three questions as best as we can learn from God's word. Now, there's a fourth question that I think is maybe the most important question of all of these questions we're asking of this passage today and Jesus's encounter with these two men. And here's that question. Why is so much time dedicated to Jesus's appearance to these two nobodies? These are unknown Christians. Once again, we don't know who they are. They weren't mentioned ahead of time. They're not mentioned again afterwards. Why is so much time dedicated to them? Now, you may not naturally think of that question, but as I was looking at Jesus' accounts to all the different people on Easter Sunday this past week, something really struck me. I counted verses that are dedicated to Jesus' appearances to different people on the first Easter. And here's what I discovered. I thought this was pretty interesting. Just two verses in Matthew are dedicated to Jesus' appearance to the women at the tomb. We talk about those ladies like every Easter. Only two verses are dedicated to Jesus' appearance to those two ladies. Just seven verses in John are dedicated to Jesus' appearance to the ten disciples in the upper room. Isn't that crazy? These guys followed Jesus night and day for three years. Only ten verses dedicated to Jesus' appearance to them on that first Easter Sunday. We know that Jesus appeared one-on-one to Simon Peter on the first Easter Sunday. Simon was the lead apostle. He goes on years later to write two books of the New Testament. Guess how many verses are dedicated to Jesus' appearance to Simon Peter? A whopping zero. We're told in two places Jesus appeared to him, but we're not given any details. Isn't that interesting? The lead apostle writes two books of the New Testament. The first person Jesus appeared to on Easter Sunday, remember, was Mary Magdalene. She gets some pretty good coverage. Mark dedicates three verses to her. uh, And then uh, over in John, he dedicates eight verses to her encounter with Jesus. So you add those two together, 11 verses are dedicated to Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene. But catch this. A whopping 23 verses are dedicated to Jesus' appearance to these two men on the road to Emmaus. Like twice as much, more than twice as much as second place. And we ask the question, why? We don't even know these guys. Why is so much time dedicated to Jesus' appearance to the two men on the road to Emmaus? And the Bible doesn't give us a definite answer to that question. But here's what I want to do. I want to share with you three life lessons that I think we can pull from this passage to help us get closer to answering that question of why. Life lesson number one, Jesus doesn't just give celebrities the time of day. He is a living savior for nobodies as well. Isn't that encouraging? Could you read that with me? Jesus doesn't just give celebrities the time of day. He's a living Savior for nobodies as well. I've got to be honest with you. I'm no Apostle Peter. I'm no Apostle John. I'm no Billy Graham. I'm not a Greg Laurie. I'm no Mother Teresa. I'm just me. I'm just little old me, and I've got news for you. You are just little old you. Anyone here YouTube famous? Anybody? Anybody? Any, anybody here a big celebrity? Half of Hollywood knows you. Got Joe Biden calling you on the phone, asking you for advice. Anybody? Any, anybody? We're not celebrity. We're just 
little old me and little old you, right? Isn't it encouraging to know that Jesus Christ is every bit my Savior as he's their Savior? When you're looking at Paul and you're looking at Peter and you're looking at John, you're looking at Mother Teresa or you're looking at uh, whoever it might be, Billy Graham or Greg Laurie, Jesus Christ is every bit my Savior as he is theirs. Isn't it encouraging to know that Jesus Christ was born for me just as much as he was born for them? Isn't it encouraging to know that Jesus Christ died for me just as much as he died for them? Jesus Christ conquered death on Easter morning every bit as much for me as he did for them. What an encouraging thing that is to know in John 3:16 that wonderful verse we're told for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that any celebrity who believes in him is that what it says For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever's YouTube famous and believes in him is that what it says It says that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life Praise God. He is a Savior for any who will accept Him as Christ and Savior. Life lesson number two. Jesus gravitates to those who are both humble and teachable. Please say that with me. Jesus gravitates to those who are both humble and teachable. Could this be one of the reasons that 23 verses are dedicated to these two unknown Christian men? Because they were humble and and teachable. Did you notice in verse 25 what Jesus said to the two men on the road to Emmaus? Look at verse 25 again. Notice what he says to them. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In case you didn't realize it, this is not a compliment. <laughs> if you doubt that it's not a compliment, look at how the message paraphrases Jesus' words to these, these two men in verse 25. The message says it this way. So thick-headed, so slow-hearted, why can't you simply believe all that the prophets said? Now, these two disciples could have very easily responded like most people would have responded to someone calling them hard-hearted slow, or slow-hearted, calling them foolish. These two men could have responded like most people and said, hey, who do you think you are? We just met you 10 minutes ago. We don't know you from Adam. Where do you get off telling us this? You know, mind your own business. Get out of my face. Now, most people would have responded, right? They didn't know it was Jesus at the time. They just thought it was some schmuck that, you know, didn't know anything about Jesus. So they start to tell him about him. And he tells them, man, you guys are slow hearted. Uh, you guys are slow to learn. You guys are foolish. And notice how they responded. They responded with humbleness and teachability. That's pretty remarkable, I think. The stranger calls them thick-headed and foolish, and they respond humbly, and they're teachable. They didn't respond like most people. I guarantee you, these men experienced the greatest moment in their human lives because they were humble and teachable when that stranger they didn't recognize told them to listen up. Isn't that something? Sometimes people will come to us and they have a word from the Lord for us. Sometimes it's a spouse. Let me ask you, husbands, how many husbands in the room? There's like three of you that are proud of it. Come on, husbands in the room. All right. How do you know, do you, how many of your husbands know that sometimes God speaks to you through your wife? All right. Okay. Yeah, first service, the men didn't want to give me an amen to that. I don't know why. 
Maybe they were still waking up or they just need a little more Jesus in that first service. I don't know. How many of you wives know that sometimes God speaks to you through your husband? Yeah. Amen. Sometimes God speaks to us through our best friend. Sometimes God speaks to us through a neighbor. Sometimes God speaks to us through a coworker, fellow student. Sometimes God speaks to us through the person that absolutely drives us up the wall. The person who gets on our last nerve. Sometimes God speaks to us through that type of person. So imagine these two men here. They have some guy they don't know from Adam basically saying something that ain't complimentary. And you guys are hard-hearted. You guys are you're slow to learn. You guys are foolish. And they're so humble and teachable. They open their ears instead of closing them. And I guarantee you by the end of their lives, when they look back on their lives, they would say that was the greatest day in the history of their life. The day they listened as Jesus continued to teach. And from that point forward, they could look back and tell people the day they met Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And they would have missed it all if they had come with arrogance and closed their ears. God has called us to be humble and teachable. I guarantee you, if you will stay humble and teachable before Jesus Christ, the greatest experiences of your Christian life are still up ahead. You will be forever changed by what Jesus Christ does in your life if you will stay humble and teachable. Life lesson number three. Jesus is looking for dedicated followers who will go and tell others the good news. Read that with me. Jesus is looking for dedicated followers who will go and tell others the good news. During his three-year ministry, Jesus' normal practice was to tell people he healed not to go blab it to other people. Jesus wasn't renting out stadiums. He wasn't calling in thousands of people and saying, Hey, I'll be here till Tuesday. Tell all your friends. When someone wanted to be healed, he would never say, wait just a minute, I'm going to wait for another thousand people to show up so I can do it in front of all of them like Benny Hinn. No, I didn't say that. He didn't draw a crowd when he did miracles. He did it quickly before people caught on what was going on. That's how Jesus worked. But it changed, didn't it? His final week of ministry and especially after his resurrection, he's basically saying, tell everybody about me. Now, if you were to boil the messages of the angels that come and roll the stone away and speak to the women at the tomb, if you were to combine their messages on Easter morning with the messages that Jesus gives later in the day to his disciples and followers, if you were to condense them down to just a few words, here are the two messages of Easter. Number one, come and see. Say that with me. Come and see. And the second message is go and tell. Say that with me. Go and tell. Those are the messages of Easter. Come and see that the tomb is empty. See for yourselves that the grave clothes are still there. They're not an upheaval. There wasn't a grave robber that had them spewing all over the inside of that tomb. The body just had passed through the grave clothes, and so they sank, sank neatly in place right there on the stone table where Jesus had been laid on Friday. Pretty amazing. They're right there. The, the head face cloth was right there, folded up at the top of that stone table there inside the tomb. They could see that. Come and see that Jesus is not here. And then secondly, once you have come and seen, go and tell. That's what the angels told the women there at the tomb. Go and tell his disciples. When Jesus appeared to them, he said, go and tell my brothers what has happened. 
when Jesus appears to these men on the road to Emmaus, certainly that's one of the reasons he chose to reveal himself to those two unknown guys is because he knew they would be quick to go and tell others about Jesus. Oh, notice what happens there late in the passage. Jesus reveals himself. Their eyes are open. They recognize Jesus. And what do they do immediately? They don't wait until the next weekend to go back to Jerusalem to tell people they saw Jesus, right? They don't even wait until the next morning. They get up from the dinner table and immediately bolt seven miles uphill to go back to Jerusalem and tell the disciples and the other Christians that they saw Jesus. He is risen indeed. And so possibly one of the reasons God chose to reveal Jesus Christ to these two men on Easter Sunday was because they were quick to go and tell. I got to think about that a few days ago, and as I was thinking, I realized these men, seven miles uphill, reminds me of Grandma's story. Oh, yeah, I used to walk 17 miles uphill both ways in the snowstorm to get to school. I don't know how you walk uphill both ways, but these guys really were walking uphill to get back to Jerusalem. And some of us aren't even willing to walk 50 feet downhill to our next-door neighbor's house to invite him to church. Some of us aren't willing to tell anyone. These guys were so willing. And so Jesus chose them. Oh, your good newsing leaves a little to be desired, and so does mine. It's one of the reasons I'm so excited that beginning today we're meeting in this very strategic location where we can reach people that we couldn't reach before. We were in a neighborhood before. Unfortunately, the neighborhood was uninhabited. Over the last two Sundays, we've been going up Kamana, and we knocked on the apartment doors uh, Sunday before last and got to invite a bunch of people to church. Last week, Adam had a team going up to the houses on Kamana, and we've only scratched the surface of the thousands of people who live within a, a single radius of one mile from this building. It's a strategic location to reach people. One of the reasons we've been wanting to come to this area is because there's not a single evangelical Bible-teaching church in this part of Apple Valley. We've got a Mormon church. We've got a religious science church. We've got a Catholic church. There's not a single Bible-teaching evangelical church in this area. This area needs a good church. So here we are. Amen? What a wonderful opportunity God has given us to go and share the good news with others. He's called us to go and tell. Now, there are two types of people in the world. Guess what those two types are? There are two types of people in the world. Those who like Lord of the Rings and those who don't. I'm in the camp that likes Lord of the Rings. There's a point to all this, believe me. I'm one of those that likes Lord of the Rings. And if you're not familiar with the the books or familiar with the movies that came out, it basically tells the story. A Christian man, Tolkien, wrote this. He was a friend of C.S. Lewis, and both C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, they wanted to write these stories, these fictional stories, to try to convey the story of the gospel. And so Tolkien in his book, in the final book, Return of the King, has this wonderful little conversation take place between Samwise Gamgee and the great wizard Gandalf the White. In this, he's pictured as Gandalf the Grey. We won't get into the difference. But basically, the story goes like this. The young hobbit, Frodo, has been chosen to be the one to take the ring of power. That ring of power, if it gets into the wrong hands, all of Middle-earth will fall to the evil forces of Lord Salomon. 
And so the ring of power, it gets placed in the hands of Frodo, and he goes on the long quest across Middle Earth to the fires of Mount Doom and has to throw that ring into the fires of Mount Doom and destroy it so it doesn't get into the wrong hands and Middle Earth can be saved. And along that journey, Frodo's best friend, Samwise Gamgee, is with him. And in the book, something is shared in the final chapters that actually didn't make it into the movie. And it's a wonderful little conversation. Samwise Gamgee, after he makes it to the fires of Mount Doom, he sees his little buddy Frodo throw the fire, throw the, the ring into the fire. Samwise Gamgee is so exhausted by that point, he collapses and goes unconscious. And in a while, Samwise Gamgee wakes up, and the first face he sees is the face of Gandalf the Grey. And as he looks at him, And sees Gandalf, this is what he says. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. And then Samwise asks a question that I believe reveals one of the deepest truths that's disguised in the pages of this fictional story. He asks this remarkable question of Gandalf. He asks him, is everything sad going to come untrue? Isn't that an interesting statement? Is everything sad going to come untrue? He doesn't say what we would expect him to say. He doesn't ask what we would expect him to ask. Are all my dreams going to come true? Is everything happy going to come true? He doesn't say any of that, does he? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And I got to thinking about that. What a truly deep and profound statement. Because true deliverance and salvation aren't just a matter of our wishful, happy dreams coming true. At a deeper level, deliverance and salvation are about our real-life nightmares becoming untrue. How many can say amen to that? Our real-life nightmares becoming untrue. Hear me loud and clear on this. Jesus Christ conquered sin on Good Friday. And he conquered death on Easter Sunday. Because of that, your real life nightmares can come untrue. Your physical pain can come untrue. How many can give me an amen to that? You're done with your physical pain. You're ready to be done with it. One day your physical pain will become untrue in Christ. Your heartache can become untrue in Christ. Your depression can become untrue in Christ. Your addictions and your hopelessness can come untrue in Christ. And here's the best part. Your sin and the eternal punishment for your sin and your separation from God because of that sin, all of that can come untrue because of Jesus Christ. Can we give him some praise and glory today? Amen. Through Jesus Christ, everything sad. Everything sad, everything heartbreaking, everything that, may I use this term on a Sunday morning, everything that sucks about this life will come untrue in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to do what I could never do. Jesus Christ came to do what you could never do. And we're surrounded by people that day after day they're beating their heads against a wall trying to fix their own problems that they'll never be able to fix. Trying to heal relationships that can never be healed. Trying to earn their way to heaven in a way that can never be earned. But by Jesus Christ. 
There are certain things that Jesus Christ alone can only do. And that's the message we have to share. In Revelation 21, 4 and 5, we read at the end of time, Jesus Christ will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Because Jesus Christ conquered sin on Good Friday and conquered death on Easter Sunday, he has made a way for everything to become new or to say it more like Samwise Gamgee would. Jesus Christ has made a way for everything sad to come untrue. Now, you can't keep that good news to yourself. You can't just come and see. God has called you to go and tell. This is a huddle on a Sunday morning. But just like in the center of the football field, the huddle at some point has to break, and you've got to carry out the play. You've got to carry out the game plan. And God is sending you into your home, and he's sending you into your workplace, and he's sending you into your neighborhood, and he's even sending you into Walmart to go and tell people about Jesus Christ. And I want you to invite him to come with you next week. And I'll help tell you with him. I'll help tell them with you. However that's working. We'll do it together. We'll do it together. We've come and we've seen. Now God has called us to go and tell. Please bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, we come to you thanking you and praising you for being our awesome Savior and Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing for us on the cross what we could never do for ourselves to pay the perfect penalty for our sin. Thank you for doing on Easter morning what we could never do for ourselves to bring life from death. And Lord Jesus, I thank you for giving us this opportunity to live here in this Victor Valley at this point in time to be your messengers, to share the good news of Christ. Help us to be faithful. We have come and we've seen. May we boldly go and tell because people are lost and dying without Jesus. They need Jesus. May we tell them. Their heads are bowed and their eyes are closed. I can't imagine in a group this size that all of us have made a decision to accept Jesus Christ. Certainly some of us are here and struggling with whether or not we believe in Jesus. We can't remember a specific time when we put Jesus in the driver's seat of our lives. If that describes you, you realize you need to make a clear decision today to accept Christ. A clear decision to put Jesus in the driver's seat of your life. I want to ask you to be bold enough right now just to raise your hand. You know what? I need Jesus right now. I don't know if I died today, I'd go to heaven. I don't know if I've made a decision for him tell people I'm a Christian, but I don't know if I ever told Jesus that. If you have a decision to make today, you just raise your hand. Let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, I want to pray for anyone here who has never accepted you as Lord and Savior. Here at Impact, we share the ABCs a lot. A, each of us needs to admit that we are a sinner and need Jesus. B, we need to believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He's our only chance of being forgiven to make it to heaven someday and to have a relationship with our creator God and see you've called us to choose to accept Jesus Christ and put him in the driver's seat of our lives today. 
anyone needs to make that decision, Lord, I pray that they would today and not leave this place without getting right with you. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. If you've decided to make a decision for Christ today, or maybe you just need prayer, Adam's up here, Martha, got a few of us up here, Danielle's up here. We'd love to pray with you after the service. We'll be here as long as it takes, because you're a priority for us today. We're so glad that you came on Easter Sunday. We're going to close with a final song. As a reminder, if you're a first-time visitor, do make your way out to the canopy around the front. Uh, we've got, I think, a few donuts left, a few muffins. Love for you to dig in if you'd like. And first-time visitors, we've got a gift we want to get into your hands. And as a reminder, first 10 uh, visitors out there will get one of those cone ice, uh, free uh, cone ices for next week. We'd love to have you come back and enjoy that family day with us next week.